0: Thank you very much. I want to take this moment first of all to thank so many hundreds of you that prayed for me last winter uh, when my life literally hung in the balance from day to day. Now the good news for me was I was so drugged up in the hospital I didn't have any idea it was that serious. Uh, And uh, uh, everybody else would take a look at me and. Uh, walk out of the room crying. And I would think, man, I don't look that bad, do I? And then afterwards, when I made a little bit of progress, people would say, boy, you look good. You look really good. And I thought, man, I must have looked really bad, uh, or they wouldn't be saying that. And uh, I cannot thank you enough from the depth of my heart. Uh, I, I remember the day I was told that you stopped right here in Convo to pray for me, Uh, And uh, God heard those prayers, and God answered those prayers. Uh, I want to thank one person in particular that prayed, I think, more than anybody, uh, believed more than anybody, worked harder than anybody to keep me alive, and that's my wife of over 40 years, Donna. And uh, Donna, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I know you don't like that kind of attention, but uh, thank you, hon, very, very much. For those of you that are new this semester, let me give you a quick update. I'm one of those guys full of energy. Uh, I speak uh, at least uh, 40 times a year around the country, Uh, tape record 50 television programs uh, in California, teach a full load uh, here at Lynchburg, uh, over 1,000 students a semester, 2,000 students a year. Uh, I've lectured at Oxford and Harvard and numerous places, uh, but uh, all of a sudden, Uh, last winter, I found myself occasionally short of breath. I did not have a heart attack. I didn't pass out. I just got a little slow moving along. Uh, I'd have to stop and catch my breath. Uh, We were traveling in Germany speaking in January and my wife and son and daughter-in-law were with me and my son took me aside after a while and he said, Dad, you need to go see the doctor. Uh, This isn't normally you. Uh, You're jumping on and off the trains here in Europe, you're preaching the sermons, but every time you're dragging the suitcase, you're huffing and puffing." So I said, all right, all right, I'll go to the doctor. They sent me for a stress test. I thought, I've done these before, I can handle this, and I flunked. Uh, And uh, the lady said to me, "Uh, keep running, harder, harder, harder. I thought, man, I can't go any faster than this. I said, "Uh, what's the problem? She said, I got to get your heart rate up to 130. I said, where is it? She said, 128. I said, isn't that good enough? She said, no, uh, and uh, I knew I was in trouble. So uh, they sent me for some more things and finally uh, did a catheterization on me and uh, my friends said, ah, you got minor blockage. Uh, they'll put a stint in you, you'll be out of there within a day and back to work the next day. Well, they checked me out and said, you have major blockage in all five of your main arteries, 75 to 95%, too many eggs, too much cheese, pal too many burgers, uh, whatever, something got you, uh, and uh, we're gonna have to do open heart surgery on you. So trying to encourage me, friends of mine like Ron said, ah, open heart surgery, piece of cake. They've got it down to a science. They just sort of cut you open and zip you back up, and a couple of days later you go home and you'll be back to work in three weeks. Well, the surgery went fine. The next morning I was up walking around the rehab center Uh, I was going to prove to them that I could do this. But by the end of the second day, I was lying in bed, suddenly gasping for air. My lung collapsed. My wife had to convince the nurses, hey, this is serious. I don't think he can breathe. And I remember gasping for air, realizing if somebody doesn't do something soon, I'm going to suffocate. They finally rushed me back down to the critical care unit. And I would estimate I was probably within five minutes of checking out. Uh, And the doctor had to be called. He had to rush back to the hospital, uh, put something into my lungs to reinflate them to literally save my life. A Couple of days later, they determined uh, that I had a staph infection in the sternum where the incision had been cut. And the staph infection had to be dealt with and they had to do a second surgery. I went totally septic the inflammation spread to my entire body, and when you're totally septic, every organ in your body shuts down, except your heart and your brain. When those go, you're done. My liver shut down, my kidneys shut down. During the month of March, I was on kidney dialysis virtually every single day for four hours a day. I don't remember ever doing it. Most of that month is just a blur in my mind. People told me later, I came to see you in the hospital. I don't remember. I don't remember a thing from that month. But I do remember at one point a bizarre dream that I had, and I was told later, you nearly died three times. Well, probably at one of those stages, I dreamed that I was lying in a pine box coffin in a railroad car full of pine box coffins. And all of a sudden, the train stopped. And two men opened the doors and slid the side doors open, stepped into the train and started checking the coffins to make sure that the people that were in them were really dead. And then they'd nail the coffin lid shut and they'd move from coffin to coffin. As I was lying there, I realized there are some people in here that aren't dead yet. I could hear them moaning, but the moan was ever so slight, ever so faint and they would listen intensely to see, are they alive or are they dead? And I remember thinking, they're getting closer to my coffin, and something in me said, moan, man, moan, for all you're worth, or they're gonna nail the lid shut." And then I remember thinking, maybe it'd just be easier to die and to quit. And about that point, fortunately, I woke up, uh, and uh, I didn't have to make that decision, and I woke up with a determination to live, a determination to pray for a miracle in my life. After laying there dormant for two months, you lose all your physical muscle, everything atrophies. I could not sit up, I couldn't stand up, I couldn't walk, I couldn't eat, I couldn't swallow. They fed me with a feeding tube and for two months I did not drink anything. Now imagine what your mouth feels like after two months of no liquids. It was like the Sahara Desert. I remember lying there thinking, if I could just have a drop of water, uh, I felt like the guy in Jesus' story uh, that was in hell wanting a drop of water. I remember thinking, if I could just drink orange juice, wouldn't that be wonderful, uh, etc. I'll never forget the day they brought a tiny miniature teaspoon of water and said, here, try to swallow this without choking, and I gulped it down, Uh, and then a little teaspoon of grape juice, and then a little more. Uh, I remember the first time I tried to eat. It looked like a mountain of food. I thought I'll never be able to get through all of this. Uh, I could barely eat. I remember the first day they tried to stand me up. It took three people to get me on my feet, uh, and I felt like jello. I thought I'm going to fall over and pass out. Uh, They stood me up for a minute. Eventually, through rehab, uh, they would crank me up on a contraption called a standing table. Some of you that are in the nursing program have some idea of what that's all about. By the way, the many nurses that took care of me, uh, by far the best, were the graduates of Liberty University. The Liberty nurses were unbelievable. The night my lung collapsed, and I'm gasping for air, and they're waiting for the doctor to arrive, a young Liberty graduate named Jessica recognized me, and she said, "It's Doctor Heinzen. Don't let him die. Don't let him die. He's my favorite teacher. We got to keep him alive." Uh, that was encouraging to hear. Somebody knows me. Somebody's trying to get people motivated around here. Thank God for that program. When they'd stand me up on that standing table, they. Sit you in a chair, put a belt around your bottom, and then they crank you up onto a tabletop so you can lean on it and get you used to standing on your legs. Five minutes, ten minutes, eventually thirty minutes, etc. I remember the day uh, in May when my therapist said to my wife, "Look, we're doing everything we can for him, but realize he might leave here in a wheelchair." He might not be able to walk before they dismiss him from rehab. And uh, I remember the look on her face of terror like, can't send him home not walking. I can't pick him up. Uh, I can't carry him around. It took three nurses to get me out of bed into the wheelchair. Uh, and uh, I remember one, one of our graduates uh, was there that night and said to her, I'm going to pray boldly that God will let him walk By tomorrow morning. And I remember thinking, man, that's bold. By tomorrow morning? (laughs) The next morning, I took eight steps on a walker, and God answered that prayer. When I left the Baptist Hospital and the rehab section, I left walking and spent the summer trying to learn to get mobile enough to get around. I want to talk to you today about praying for a miracle, asking God for the unbelievable, for the impossible, and letting Him challenge you uh, with my own story. Much of the miracle I was oblivious to. Much of the time I was unaware of how serious the situation was, but those that were dealing with me understood it. My doctor said later, this is a miracle. This is divine intervention. God has certainly answered the prayers of thousands of people that are praying for you all over the country and all over the world. And I want to give you three points that God impressed on my wife's heart uh, that uh, she felt were essential uh, in finding the answer uh, of God intervening on our behalf. Number one, I want to challenge you when you're really praying for a miracle to focus on the greatness of God. Not on your problem, not on the crisis, not even on yourself. There is a tendency in our moment of need to say, oh God, help, it's me. Why me, why now, why this, whatever? That doesn't get the job done. That is often the response of unbelief, not belief. If I'm really gonna get my prayers answered, I need to remember who I'm talking to. That I'm really crying out to the God of the universe who can make a difference in my life, and that's why it's so important that while you're here at Liberty, you know that you know that you know God personally. That he is not just somebody you talk about or think about, that he's not just an intellectual exercise in a theology class, but that he is the personal God who can change my life and meet my needs. A passage that I think speaks to this so powerfully is found in the book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter, beginning at verse 28. Where the prophet Isaiah said, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired in his understanding. No one can fathom him. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow weary and tired, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. What Isaiah is doing is helping us understand who God is in light of our need. Notice he's the everlasting God. God is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the creator of the universe the one who made you and me, who understands our every need. Uh, He will not grow tired or weary. He's immutable, he's unchangeable. Uh, His understanding no one can fathom. Uh, He's incomprehensible, yet he is omniscient. I can know him and I can know him personally, but I cannot fathom everything about him Uh, at the same time. God is both comprehensible and incomprehensible. And yet he is omnipotent. His power increases continually. That's the God that can make a difference in your life. That's the God that we put our hope in. Uh, That Hebrew term in the Old Testament, kavoh, means uh, a confident expectation of hope. An eager anticipation that you can trust God with your life and with your problems because God is God. If you're struggling with something difficult right now that's pushing you to the edge of your faith, pushing you to the edge of your human endurance, let me remind you, get your eyes off yourself, off the problems, and get your eyes focused on God. God is the one who can make the difference. Focus on the greatness of God and understand when I'm crying out to him in my moment of need who he is and what he can do on your behalf. Secondly, I would challenge you not only to focus on the greatness of God, but to pray boldly, to pray confidently in the power of the Lord Himself. Uh, The Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews uh, that we are to come boldly before the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, therefore, since we have a great High Priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly with a tight grip to the faith that we profess. In other words, put your faith into action. Hold on in those moments of trouble. For we do not have a High Priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted or tried in every way, even as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Notice how the writer of that passage is saying to us, in essence, when you have the greatest need, God is the greatest God to meet that need. You have in heaven, in Jesus Christ, a high priest. You don't need a human priest to do your religion for you, uh, to be the go-between between you and God. Your high priest is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one uh, that stands before the throne of God. He is the one that makes intercession for us. And notice the throne is the throne It is the throne of grace. It is a throne that exudes grace, that overflows with grace, that gives us grace upon grace. Karin karatos. It is the throne of grace, and it is grace, Karin anticaratos, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Again and again and again and again, you can come to the throne of God, not as a throne of judgment, but as a throne of grace to meet your every need and your every supply. When I play with my grandkids, throw them up in the air to catch them. Uh, or tease them or chase them or get them to laugh. Uh, When they're little, they'll say, again, Papa, again, again, again. Uh, It's endless. Uh, Never tease a three-year-old. It never stops. Uh, Again, again, again. Well, let me remind you, God has an endless supply. Again, 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 and again, He can meet your need over and over and over. Why? Because we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He says in the next chapter that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with cries and with tears. He is a Savior who weeps with us in our tragedies, in our struggles, in our difficulties, who stands before the tomb of Lazarus and begins to cry and to weep not because Lazarus is dead, because he's going to raise him back to life, but because he sees the mourners weeping. He sees his sisters weeping. He is touched with the feeling of their pain. And as you read the New Testament, you discover that in the person of Jesus Christ, your great high priest, here is a priest that understands me, that loves me, that cares about me, that weeps when I weep, that cries when I cry. That's why we're told, You are to draw near to the throne of grace. Don't stand back at a distance. Don't pray at at a distance and say, God, if somehow, maybe, uh, you might consider helping me in my time of need. No, the author of Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Come with great assurance and boldness. Uh, It's the Greek word parisia. Uh, Come with confidence Come with assurance and boldness, God will hear my prayer, God will meet my need, and God will give me grace upon grace upon grace from His throne to meet that need, no matter how great it is. Uh, I realize there is a balance that we have to have in prayer, that on the one hand the Scripture tells us if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. Uh, On the other hand, it says, come boldly to the throne of grace. When Peter was sinking in the water, he didn't stop and figure out the theological options at that point. He just said, Lord, save me. Help. I'm dying here. Do something, quickly. Uh, Sometimes the shortest prayers are the most fervent prayers because they're the most serious prayers. Uh, When you cry out to God from the depth of your heart and soul, that's when you can expect, God will move on my behalf. God will hear me and answer my prayer. He'll give me the faith to realize that he'll hear the prayer, he'll answer the prayer, he'll grant my request, and only in his great sovereign wisdom will he ever deny it. Uh, That sometimes uh, my need is only part of a greater picture of what God is doing in the world. And while it is true that not everyone is healed, not everyone recovers, when you're the person who is suffering, When you're the person who is facing the moment of need, can I tell you, he is a loving savior and you can abandon your heart and life and soul to him. That's why you need to know that God is really God and God is the one that can make the difference in my life. Uh, A casual, uh, somewhat indifferent understanding of God will not see you through to heaven. It will not get you through life and it will not stand your stead In the moment that you're facing the possibility of death, at that moment, you want to be able to say, God, I have given my life to you. I have surrendered it to you. I have lived it unto you. It's yours. If you take it, then for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, as the Apostle Paul would say, Uh, that I could have the confidence that whether I live or die, it's unto him, it's unto his glory and unto his honor. It's not my life, it's a gift that he has given me, and I am giving that gift back to him by surrendering my life to serve him and even surrendering my life even at the moment of death. Focus on the greatness of God if you're praying for a miracle. Pray boldly and confidently. And then thirdly, pray in faith, not doubting. That challenging passage Uh, In the book of James, where James, the brother of Jesus, uh, says this in the first chapter. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed in the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded and unstable in all that he does. Well, that's a convicting passage, a passage that says to us, in essence, that if you're going to get an answer, you have to come to God with faith and confidence, not doubting. Uh, The phrase in the Greek New Testament is a conditional clause. Uh, In other words, the condition is you have to believe and not doubt. Uh, He's not saying that if you just ask, you're gonna get it. He's saying on the condition that you believe and do not doubt, you will receive it. And you believe with a sense of confident hope and confident expectation. God will hear, God will answer my prayer. Uh, We have three challenges from three different parts of scripture. That if I'm going to get my prayers answered, I need to understand and focus on the greatness of God. I'm talking to somebody who can do something about the problem. I need to pray boldly and confidently before the throne of grace. I need to pray in faith, not doubting. I think of the people throughout the New Testament. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, whose condition was incurable. Who reaches out in a desperate moment and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and instantly is healed. And Jesus said to her, your faith has healed you. I think in Matthew 9 of the two blind men that are crying out, Jesus, son of David, a messianic title, we may be physically blind, but we can see who you are. You are the Messiah, help us. And Jesus kept on walking, went into a house, and the blind men pursued him to the house, obviously with help. Uh, And they come to him and Jesus knows what they want. He knows what your need is. He may not answer on your timetable, but he'll always answer on his timetable. And finally he looked at them and said, do you really believe I can do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And he said, then according to your faith, be it unto you. A a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, uh, comes to him. uh, In Matthew 15, uh, begging him, uh, son of David, heal my daughter. And Jesus said, I've not seen such great faith even in Israel. Your daughter is healed. Go home. Over and over and over, the Bible emphasizes the importance of faith and confidence in the Lord. If I'm going to pray and expect to get an answer, that will make a difference in my life. Uh, The writer of that passage in Hebrews actually goes so far as to say that in Christ, we have an anchor of hope that is cast beyond the veil into the holy of holies. He's thinking of that time when Jesus dies on the cross and God pours the sin of mankind upon his own son and the wrath of God is poured out on him and Jesus has made sin for us. And in those moments of agony, as he pulls against the nails and stands up on the spikes and he shouts, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the veil of the temple is torn in half, that gives access to the Holy of Holies, to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is reminding us that when Jesus died on the cross, when He shed His blood for you and me, He threw the anchor of hope into the Holy of Holies. Your faith is anchored to the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, your faith is anchored to the very presence of the glory and the power of God. Now, I don't care how old you are here today or how young you are. There will come a time in your life you're gonna have to grab the rope and hold on to the anchor. The challenges of life will come. The death of a loved one, the illness of a parent, a bad report at the doctor for you, Uh, a financial disaster, a a personal disappointment, a job that is lost, a marriage that collapses, whatever it may be, there will come a time you need to grab the rope and know my anchor holds on the other side. Jesus has already paved the way into the presence of God. Therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace, and he will give you all that you need. You want to pray for a miracle? Pray by focusing on the greatness of God. Pray boldly. Pray in faith, not doubting. Let's pray. So we bow before the Lord, we'd miss the point of the message if I didn't take time to say, we need to pray for the challenge that you're facing on your level, in your experience right now. Something is pushing you to the edge. And I wonder how many of you would say, Ed, man, I I need a miracle in my life. I need an answer to prayer. I need God to show himself powerful on my behalf, either myself or my family, my friends. We're facing something that only God can meet our need. And I need that kind of an answer that you're talking about today. How many of you have that kind of a need? Let me see your hand. Put it up. Many of you. Hundreds of you. Then I'm going to ask you, let's do something about it. I'm going to ask you to get right out of your seat right now. Come right here and stand in the front. Bring your request with you on your heart. And let's pray about it, all right? Uh, we don't need to stand. We'll just get up and come. Come on. I've got a need. I God only can meet the need and answer it. Say, I'm in the middle of a row. Say, excuse me. People will be glad to let you out. Let's pray about it right now. If you're all the way to the top, just come. If you're here on the floor, just come. God bless you, each one of you. For some of you, the need may be Personal. But I wonder how many of you would say, Ed, man, my need is, is physical. I need help with a physical problem in my life. Let me see your hand. Bless your hearts. How many of you, it's a family need. Let me see your hands. Many of you. Father, as we're coming before you right now, filling these rows, we're coming because we believe that you are the God the Bible declares you to be. We're coming boldly, with confidence, because we believe that you're a God who sits on a throne of grace, and that that throne exudes grace, it overflows with grace, and that that grace is sufficient to meet every one of our needs. And we're coming, praying by faith, not doubting, and saying, God, here I am. I'm abandoning myself, my need, and my request to you. You're the only one that can help me and meet this need. And so I'm praying with confidence, God, be glorified in the problem that I'm facing, in the challenge that I'm up against. May people see you at work in my life and my heart and my faith, and may we see answers that will bring glory to you. And so I want to pray, Father, for every man and woman kneeling here. God, may the blessing of heaven flow down on them right now. May the touch of your grace be powerful and real in their hearts and lives. And may we realize that even in our most desperate moments, we have a Savior who loves us, who cares, who weeps on our behalf, and who sees our tears. And may you see those tears this morning. And may you hear the cry of our heart, And may you meet our needs as only you can, for we pray with faith and confidence in the name of Jesus Christ, our High Priest, our Anchor, our Savior, for it's in His name we ask and all of us said Amen. God bless you, each one of you. we can help you in any way, you let us know afterwards. Go and live with that confidence that the grace of God is on my side. Thank you for your prayers on my behalf.